0: I know you're all aware of this, but Jesus often used parables or imageries to portray various various truths about God or humankind or even the relationship between the two, okay? In our passage this morning, Jesus uses the imagery of sheep and shepherd to do all three, okay, to communicate the character of God, humankind, and the relationship between the two, and particularly his own sheep, okay? So turn with me, if you haven't already, to John chapter 10 for the reading of God's word. Let's stand together. We will read verses 1 through 21 together. The Gospel of John chapter 10, the parable of the good shepherd. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Now this figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, But they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired man and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and not and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, which are old. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me. I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I need to lay it down, and I have to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Now John says, a division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. And we're saying, he has a demon, and he's insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon of the blind, can he? Father in heaven, God, thank you for these wonderful words of life, life-giving words, words that reveal your character, words that reveal your purpose, words that reveal our Savior as being the good shepherd of our souls. Oh, Father, please, please, Give us understanding. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. May the word of God be taken by the spirit of God and implanted a little bit deeper into the soul of our heart, the soil of our hearts and our souls. And Father, they may not just sit there, but begin to produce the fruit that is intended by your Holy Spirit, that fruit that will result in exalting Jesus Christ in a lost and fallen world and our own sphere of influence at work and at home and with one another. So, God, may the result of our worship be a fruitful life as a result of spending time with you this morning. In Jesus' name we ask, Father, amen and amen. You may be seated. now is not the first time that we have the imagery of sheep and shepherd in the Bible. Let me give you a few examples of this. For example, Psalm 23 and Psalm 80 speak of God as the shepherd of Israel. Psalm one nineteen one seventy-six And Isaiah 53, 6 described people as sheep that have what? astray You're familiar with that passage, particularly Isaiah 53. They're, they're sheep that have gone stray, Isaiah 56, 9 through 12, and Ezekiel 34 address the failures of God's shepherds back in the Old Testament, the failure of ministers to watch over the sheep of Israel. Yeah, Ezekiel 34 will go on and describe the coming Messiah as the one who will come and actually feed his sheep. And that's what Jesus does this morning. He really up on that Old Testament imagery of sheep and a shepherd. And in the process, he calls himself the good shepherd, a shepherd who looks after, dies for, and as you've read, leads his sheep. And in so doing, this is what he does. In, In giving this parable, he sets himself in contrast with the Pharisees and religious leaders of his day. Now, having said that, there's no reason to think whatsoever that chapter 10 and chapter 9 are not connected. I don't believe there's a pause here. So back up to the last two verses in chapter 9. I want to show you something here. In verse 40 and 41, he's really addressing the Pharisees, this, this more narrow group, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He says in verse 40, those are the Pharisees who were With him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? John records them again, drilling and asking Jesus. There's a confrontation going on here. And here's Jesus' answer in verse 41. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. Whoa. But since you say we see, your sin remains. I believe what he does in the next verse, he just continues on. And there, as a result, there's no pause. He goes, truly, truly, I say to you, he, he, who, he does not enter by the door into the fold of sheep, but climbs some other way. He is a thief or a robber. Looking straight at those Pharisees, he continues on with this parable. So he uses the occasion of the blind man to teach them about himself being the good shepherd and his father who sent him and the sheep he came to get. It's as if he says this, listen to this, who is the real shepherd here? It's like Jesus standing before them, and he's going, listen, folks, Pharisees, folks, listen to this. Who's the real shepherd here, me or them? I'm the one that came to heal. I'm the one giving you words of life. I am feeding you. I'm not here for my own good. I'm here for the sheep. And here these guys are prophesied about in Ezekiel 34, and they're here for themselves. I beg the question, who is the real shepherd? Who is the good shepherd? As a matter of fact, let me read Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 5. If you're not there, just listen to these words. Then the word of the Lord came to me, that is to Ezekiel, saying this, Son of man. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. That's the first characteristic of a false shepherd, an unfaithful shepherd. They feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back, nor you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. You are lording it over them. And why? For your own selfish gain and advantage. Then verse 5. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And it became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. This was not only true in Ezekiel's day, but this was prophetic of Jesus' day. And Jesus is living it right here in John chapter 10. Yes, and that's what he's talking about. It's as if he says, who's the real shepherd here, me or the Pharisees? You see, his goal, his purpose in using this parable in chapter 10 to distinguish between a true shepherd, i.e. the good shepherd, from the false. It's a real simple parable. And actually, the passage is quite simple. Jesus does three things here in our passage this morning. Number one, he gives the parable in verses 1 through 6, actually 1 through 5. And then verses 7 through 18, he explains the parable. And then 19, 20, and 21, he gives us the response of the people to the explanation of the parable. So you have the parable, explanation, response of the folks. But in order to com- comprehend the parable, let me spend a minute or two telling you what it was like to be a shepherd back in the day in Palestine, first century Palestine. Here's, here's basically what it looked like. Every shepherd had his individual flock, and during the day he had them with him. Okay, and he would lead them to pasture. But at nighttime things changed. They would have a a, a basically a stone wall, maybe three, four, five feet high. Okay, and the shepherds would bring their sheep into this big enclosure probably made out of stone or something like that, you know, relatively high. And there was only one opening to it. And the reason why they brought it in, brought it to it at night was to protect the sheep at night because that's when they were most volatile to danger, right? They were more prone to thieving and stealing for, for people to come in and take their sheep. So the, in that enclosure, there would be many different sheep from different shepherds, okay? So during the evening, they would intermingle. You know, the sheep during the night would kind of just graze around in that enclosure and, you know, and and move around. So you you couldn't tell whose was whose sheep by the look, right? And so Jesus comes along and he gives this parable of what's going on there. In the morning, when the sun arose, the shepherd would come and he wouldn't be able to identify his sheep by the way they look because they all basically look the same. And I'm sure in first century Palestine, they're all very dirty sheep, Okay. So you really couldn't tell, except for one thing. The shepherd knew the voice. I mean, the sheep knew the voice of their shepherd because they got used to it every day. And so the shepherd did not know the sheep by their look, but the sheep knew the shepherd's voice. So the shepherd would come and call for his sheep. And the sheep that belonged to that voice would come, and he would take them out. And once he gathered them together, then he would get before them and lead them away during the daytime to go and graze. Then the next shepherd would come and he would call for his sheep and those sheep would understand his voice and know his voice and they would come and he would gather them together. And once his sheep came to him and were gathered together, then he would lead them away and so on and so forth. So now we read the parable. Truly, truly, I say to you in verse one, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs in some other way, he is a thief and robber. You see, the thief, the robber, the false shepherd who wants to go in and steal, well, he know he can't go by the door because the doorkeeper is not going to, number one, recognize him. And number two, if he made a call, not one sheep would come out. Identifying that one as a false shepherd. The only way they can get a sheep or steal a sheep is if they would climb that little stone wall into that encampment or that enclosement and try to, you know, they have to jump over and then try to throw a sheep outside and go take one. He tried to go in unnoticed or undetected to climb over the wall to steal one of the sheep. That's why verse 2, but as opposed to those who do not enter by the door, there's those who enter by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens. This is in the morning, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep. I love this. <laughs> Highlight this in your Bibles. By name. Come, Edward. Come, Susan. Come, Alan. I'm just picking out names at random. I hadn't had this plan. Don't worry about it. Come, by name. Wow. How personal. Isn't that beautiful? And he leads them out. That means they follow. Verse 4, when he puts forth all his own, when he gathers them together outside the encampment, he goes ahead of them, and what do they do? And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They come out of the encampment, they come together around him, and he will start walking that direction, and they're going to follow him because they know his voice. Verse 5, a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him. They don't just not follow and say, I'm not going. They hightail it away. They don't stay around. They actually flee. Does that make sense? Because they do not know the voice of strangers. The parable itself in verses 1 through 5 have two major thoughts here. The first one is this, the approach to the sheep, which we've just said. That's number one. The true shepherd enters the door. He doesn't jump the fence. He doesn't jump the wall of the encampment. He goes directly to the door. Robbers and thieves, they climb the walls. They attempt to sneak in unnoticed and undetected to climb over the wall to steal one of the sheep. Number two, voice recognition. Voice recognition. Overnight, as I said earlier, the sheep would intermingle. But when the shepherds returned in the morning to retrieve their sheep, it was easy to find it was easy to find this the flock, his own flock, but not because of how they looked because they all looked the same, but because the sheep reconno- recognized the voice of their own shepherd now now, having said this, there is no hidden meaning here this is relatively of of the parables. this is kind of a simple one. In other words, the one who climbs another way, who climbs in another way. He's the thief, the robber. He is an illusion, an illustration of the false shepherds of Israel back in Ezekiel's day. But who were they in Jesus' day? The Pharisees, describes. The one who, who had been against Jesus as being the Christ. It was the corrupt Pharisees and religious leaders who put yokes around the people's neck. The yoke of the law. Telling them that you've gotta jump through this hoop, that hoop, this hoop, that hoop. You gotta keep this law and that law in order to be justified before God. And that was not the purpose of the law. If the purpose of the law was to save people, then Jesus never would have come. But the purpose was, the purpose of the law was to show people they needed Jesus who was to come. And for us who came. That's the purpose of the law. To show us that we fall infinitely short of a holy God for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How do I know that the law, the 10 commandments, that's how you know that. And so it tutors us, it teaches us, the law tutors us and teaches us, I can't do this thing, I can't save myself, I can't redeem myself, I can't make myself right before a holy God. It's absolutely impossible. That's what the law teaches us. That's why God gave Israel the law, not not to just make them a separate nation, but to show all the nations of all time what that we must We are in the need, excuse me, of a Savior, which only God can provide, His only begotten Son. All the sacrificial system in Leviticus, and the Old Testament, all the killing of all the animals was a foreshadow of the sacrifice of Christ Himself. It is not the blood of bulls and goats that saves, it is the precious blood of the Lamb, i.e. the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the law. So now in verses 6 through 18, Jesus explains the parable and basically he breaks it down into new two main points. And here they are. Point number one is verses 6 through 10. That is Jesus is the door of the sheep. He says it in verse 7, truly, truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 9, I am the door. And then 11 through 18, He identifies himself as the good shepherd. Those are the two main points in the explanation of the parable. Number one, he is the door of the sheep. And number two, he is the good shepherd. Let's look at the first one. Verses 6 through 10, the image depicts six things. Six things, six observations, I might say, of him being the door of the sheep in verses 6 through 10. Observation number one, you ready? Are you listening? Maybe you are listening, and that's why you're silent. And You said, just keep preaching and be quiet. Quit asking. Okay. I gotcha. I like a little dialogue now and then. Okay. Okay. Now, if we had a... Never mind. Okay. Number one. All other proclaimed self-messiahs are false. That's number one. Many have gone before, and many have come after. Many have come before Jesus saying, I'm the Messiah. Since his death, burial, and resurrection, many have come afterwards and say, I am the Messiah. So number one, he is the door of the sheep. Look at verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. All that have come before me, all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout that Old Testament history, now that then, people would come, self-proclaiming messiahs would come and say, I'm him, but my sheep did not listen to them. They did not hear them because they're false. Now, I don't think Jesus, we might think the birth of Jesus was quite quiet, but I think there was a little bit of a splash in the birth of Christ because of Herod. What about the Magi? There was a little bit of, and his splash got bigger in ministry. And his splash got really big in his death, burial, and resurrection because his death was public. So it wasn't as he came in quietly. You know, he he is the door. He took, a def, took on the form of a human being, a man. That's the means by which he entered into this world. And he entered in with a splash, the virgin birth. The star proclaimed him. The magi understood. They came. Herod was so threatened, we learned a couple weeks ago. Over and over again, all this, he was, he was fulfilling scripture to the T. And so, number one, all other self-proclaimed messiahs are false. All before and all after. Number two, the elect of God are not deceived. Those who are truly born again are not deceived deceived, and will not accept, listen to this, they will never ever accept any substitutes for Jesus Christ. There is no substitute for Christ. There are none. It's not Jesus plus. It's not Jesus is wore out, now we need a substitute. It's Christ alone. And the elect, those who are in Christ, those who trust Christ, repent of their sins, and trust Christ their Lord and Savior, who are the elect, by the way, they know his voice and they are not deceived and they will never ever settle for a substitute for the one and only savior, Jesus Christ. Why? How? If you want to write down first Corinthians chapter two, listen to these words. You know why? Listen, why is this? Because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And there's many passages I could go to, but I think it's really captured in first corinthians chapter 2 listen to this verse 10 for to us god revealed them through the spirit for the spirit searches all things even the depths of god for to us god revealed them the truths of the gospel through the spirit how do i know the truths of the gospel through the work of the holy spirit in me convicting me of my sin Okay, listen, without the internal work of the Holy Spirit, without being born again, no one ever understands the gospel. No one ever comes to Christ. That's how, that's how sinful sin really is. It is utterly sinful. And sin has affected every fiber of my being, even my will. Okay? Somehow, it's not, it's not that somehow my will has not been affected. I mean, it affects the whole heart. And in, in, in the heart is is the emotions and the will and the desire. And that whole heart has been perverted with sin. And that's why we are unable to do anything about our condition, our sin nature. We need someone outside of us, infinitely powerful and sovereign, to, to, to do the saving work on our behalf. And even to get us to the point of recognizing who this person is, and he is Jesus Christ. That's why That's why Paul will say before this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why? Because he saved me from beginning to end. He's my all in all. So we go on. Verse 11, for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? I love this rationality. How do you know what I'm thinking? You really don't. I'm the only one that knows what I'm thinking. How do you know what God's thinking? Only God knows what he's thinking. In this context, it's the Holy Spirit, right? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. There you go, verse 12. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who's from God. Why? For what purpose? Here's the purpose statement. So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. That's the work of the Spirit. He illumines us. He gives us understanding. He gives us, first of all, a desire to want to be in the Word. He gives us an understanding of the Word so that we follow the Savior of the Word. Verse 14, I like. He kind of sums it up now. But a natural man, notice the contrast now. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot, what? Understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Discerning is the word there. See, that's the natural man. But he who is spiritual over here appraises, discerns all things. Why is he called spiritual? Because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who gives him understanding. That's the only thing that fits the context of verses 10 through 13. But he who is spiritual, verse 15, he discerns spiritual things, all things, yet he himself is appraised, discerned by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? Notice how, I love how Paul sums this up. But we have the mind of Christ. See, the Holy Spirit indwells you that you would have the mind of Christ. He gave us the word of God that you have in your lap so that we would have the mind of Christ. He indwells us so that we would understand the mind of Christ. This is the beautiful work of the Holy Spirit that John will later talk about in his gospel, chapter 16. And the Spirit does all these things, all these things. Why? What's the bottom line? Because the role of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, he, that is the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. That's what our salvation is all about. We're saved to bring Jesus to glory. We're not saved for ourselves. We're not saved to be a wonderful church. We're saved to proclaim a wonderful Savior. There's a lot of churches that exist today, and they're in self-existence, and they exist for themselves and not the Savior. That's an apostate church. Amen? Amen? We exist for Christ. I spent a lot more time on this than I thought of. Number three, going back to our main text in John chapter 10. All who believe, the third point. This this the door of the sheep. Number three, uh, third observation. All who believe in Jesus as the Christ will be saved. Verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will what? Be saved. Count on it. It's a done deal. He will be saved. of the Gospel of John, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation and no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Paul tells Timothy there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's why Jesus will also proclaim in the Gospels that there is a broad way that leads to destruction and there is a narrow way that leads to life. And by the way, beloved, he is that narrow way. We live in a world of inclusivity. And so this message does not make sense. This message is ridiculed. Oh, there's other ways. There's got to be more than one way because if there's only one way, what about all these people over here? you telling me they're all going to go to hell? Certainly that's not going to happen. But yet that's Jesus' teaching. We do not shy away from it, but we lovingly, humbly share it, hoping that people's eyes would be open open, so that they would repent of their sins and turn to Christ alone, Christ alone as their Savior. Not Jesus plus Buddha plus Islam plus Jehovah Witness plus Mormons and all that stuff. No, it's, it's, it's Jesus is absolutely sufficient. To add anything to him is not to trust him. Mark it down. To add anything to Christ is to tell Jesus, I don't quite trust you. Let me add a little more to you. It is simply evidence of unbelief. Number four, notice in verse 9, they go in and out. He is the door of the sheep, meaning that the sheep go in and out. Verse 9 again. He will go in and out. In other words, those who are in Christ have true freedom. That's where real freedom is. It's in Christ. They will live essentially in security. And as they live and go about everyday life, because they hear the voice of the shepherd and they've responded and they've come to him and they follow him, that they have eternal security each and every day as they go about their business. They go in and out. Number five, all who believe will grow in grace. The very last phrase of verse 9, and find pasture. And they find pasture. It's in Christ that they find the food and the spiritual nourishment and the rest for their souls. And beloved, it's a secure, eternal rest. That is the picture of verse 9. Let me just read it. Together, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, number one, he will be saved. Number two, he will be able to live every day going in and out. And number three, he'll find pasture. Number six, all who believe will have abundant life. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Notice over and over again the contrast between him as the good shepherd and all the false shepherds that have existed, even the false shepherds of his day, the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders. All other doors, in other words, lead to death. There is only one that leads to life, and that is Christ. He is the door of the sheep. All other doors are false. They give a false sense of security. Are you with me? They might look good, they might sound good, but they lead to death. They lead to theft, killing, and destruction. A great example of this today is the prosperity preachers that you hear about. They have false hope, a false message, and ultimately a false savior. They do. But their teaching leads to destruction of the soul. They are not good shepherds. They're in it for themselves, for their own advancement, for their own private jets. Some of you have heard of that. Yeah. For gaining wealth on earth is to health, wealth and prosperity gospel, a false gospel. And just think about the thousands, if not millions of people that have fallen into that. Wow, is that sad? It should break our hearts. To the point where if you ever meet a person who goes there, I would not. Even if it results in maybe the wanting to argue with you, you've got to go there with them. Because their soul is at stake. And God even saves people out of those situations. Amen? Okay. Second of all, verses 11 through 18, he is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. That's the second main point in Jesus' explanation. What makes him so good? I got a number of things here. Verse 11. He sacrifices himself voluntarily. Voluntarily. Not under compulsion, not under obligation or any external duress, but absolutely voluntarily. He's not compelled by any outside force or any outside pressures. It's not I better do this or else he voluntarily, lovingly, of his own will said, I'm going for it because that's the charge of my father. How do we know? Because he came willingly to die for it. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd, number one, lays down his life for the sheep. He did it voluntarily. The evil does it signifies the depth of his love. If you want to ask, God, how much do you love me? Well, he gave his son, and, and the second person of the Trinity died for you. That's how much he loves you. He loved you so much that in his death, he experienced and had upon himself his father's wrath and condemnation. He bore the father's anger and wrath and condemnation as your substitute so that you would not. That's how much he loves us. Wow. Verses 12 and 13. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Jesus had wolves all around him, yet he did not leave. The Pharisees, the religious wolves that gathered around him and attacked him and maligned him and over and over again were plotting to kill him, but he never ran away and left the sheep he was going after. Never. Now, the hired hand, verse 13, flees because the hired hand is not concerned about the sheep. But Jesus stayed and endured the the difficulties, endured the... The, the wrath of the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders because he was concerned about the sheep. And in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Isn't that beautiful? Number two, verse 14. As I just read, put this down. He has a personal relationship with the sheep. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. You know what's beautiful about this right here? Later on in chapter 17, go ahead and turn there to John chapter 17. First couple of verses. I want you, the same word no is involved here. The same word no is involved in chapter 17, particularly verse 3. But let me just look read verses 1, 2, and 3. Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven, he prayed. Here's his prayer. Father, the hour has come. This is in the garden. He's praying. They're going to come in and rest him in just a matter of hours or minutes even. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Even as you have gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. The Son came to redeem those the Father was giving to the Son. And all we know is those who the Father gives to the Son are those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. It's also what the Bible calls the elect, the chosen, okay? Those are not two separate group of people. It's one group. Now look at verse 3. This is the key. Jesus right here in verse 3, listen to this, gives us the definition of eternal life. This is a definition of eternal If you want to know what eternal life means, you want to know what it is. Here it is right here. Jesus prays it, verse 3. This is eternal life. What is it? That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The Greek word know is not a bunch of jumbled facts or even facts the theology and doctrine in your head it is a deep heart felling heart feeling i know you you know me and the idea here is jesus continues to pray is that we would know god the way that jesus the son of god and the father know one another they are saying come up and enjoy i'm saving you so you would enjoy the relationship that we have with one another it is a trinitarian salvation is the best way I can put it. They have this relationship with one another, and God saves sinners, and and he he brings them in to have a relationship with him and the Son and the Spirit. Wow. And he will go on later to say, "I, I want this not only for those my disciples But for those who believe on their words, that is the Gentiles later on, that is the church when it would come in Acts chapter 2. Let's go on to verse 16, point number 3, excuse me, which is in verse 16. He has sheep not of the fold of Israel. Look at verse 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I have other sheep which are not Jewish, but they are Gentiles. This is this is Jesus alluding to, if not giving a prophecy, of Acts chapter 2. Not only that, 2,000 years later, you and me. He's saying, even 2,000 years after the cross, I'm going to be gathering, I'm going to be calling out sheep, and they are even 2,000 years down the road are going to recognize my voice, which we find in his word. Let me stop right there. Do you want to hear the voice of God today? Then get into the word of God. serious. You want to hear the voice of God? Get into the word of God. Therein you'll find the voice of God. He's spoken. Alright. So He's the good shepherd. Number one, he sacrifices himself voluntarily. Number two, he has a personal relationship with his sheep. And number three, he has sheep that is not of the fold of Israel, referring to Gentiles. I love this because he's going to bring them all together. Listen to what he says in the end of verse 16. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. Paul refers to this in his letter to Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Listen to this. Listen to the words of Paul years later. He says this, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the Jews, the circumcised ones, Okay, which is performed by fleshly human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. You have no hope without God in this world. That was you, the Gentiles. But now, in Christ Jesus, that's all changed, in other words. You who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I think it's a sad thing to get today that there are Gentile congregations and that there are Messianic Jewish congregations, that there are black congregations and there are white congregations, that there are Korean and that there are American, not to mention all the denominations. Why do I say that? Because it does not show the unity that we read about in God's word. And not only that, what have we done in evangelicalism? We have now even created further separation by having a traditional service and a contemporary service. This kind of music and that kind of music, you see over and over. You know the only reason why the church exists today is because of the sovereign, miraculous work of God. It's not because of us. We. The, the, the bad thing is that we've almost done everything we can to destroy it. But Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. And the gates of hell will not prevail. Even humanity will not prevail. I love that part. But now in Christ, you who formerly were far off have been brought near. You're now close by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. Not only peace with God, but peace with one another. Who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. What, what barrier? Not just the dividing, sin that divided us, but all the cultural differences begin to be crumbling down because Christ unites us. And I really think that's in the context of what Paul's writing here and will continue to write about in chapter three. Christ breaks down all these cultural barriers that the world holds up, that the world has. But they're not worth it. I'd rather give up all those things in order to be with Christ's people and exalt him together with them. That's the vision of the church. Look at the end of verse 15. He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body. There's the picture, a body with different members belonging to one another. We'll go on. Let's go back to our passage. Believe me, I keep going, but let's just go back to our passage. Number four, under he is the good shepherd, is found in verses 17 and 18. And he says, I lay down my life and I take it up again. Look at 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Listen, I'm going to go die, and it's not going to be an accident. Okay? The shepherds back in the day in first century Palestine, every once in a while they might have to, to protect their sheep, and every once in a while they might die as a result. But that would be an accident. When Jesus came to die, it was no accident. It was intentional. It was purposeful. And it was for you. And it was for me. It was for those God called to salvation. He's referring to the death and resurrection. You see, a shepherd back in first century Palestine never intended to die, though every once in a while that might have been the case when they were protecting their flock. But this was not so with Jesus. He came with the express purpose of dying in the place of his sheep. He did just die for them. He died in their place. You see the difference? Hello? He didn't just die for you. He died in your place. That's where you belong. That's where I belong. We're the ones that deserve the wrath of God. We're the ones that fall short of his glory. Not Jesus. He is your substitute. People did not take his life. They did not force death upon him. He died under and with his own authority, he allowed others to kill him. That's why he came. That's what this text means That's exactly what he's saying. No one has taken it away from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to take it up and to lay it down Wow, that's powerful, isn't it? You know salvation is not an accident. it is intentional it is purposeful as a part of god's plan and he carried it out perfectly in his son jesus christ we also see in verse 18 number five the perfect obedience of submission of the son or better yet a reciprocal love between the father the son in these verses the father loved the son so much he gave him charge to go and redeem those sheep that he called And the son loved the father so much that he accepted the charge willingly and voluntarily and lovingly and said, father, let's do this together. You plan it and I'm going to carry it for you and I'm going to do it for them. Wow. He accepted the charge and he died for them. He died in their place. And he did this all according to the father's will. God did, in other words, here's a lesson. It's not the father is reluctantly in heaven hoping and wishing things would work out with his son. If that's the image you have, you got an image of a false God. That is not the God of Scripture. God is not wringing his hands hoping things would work out. It's not as if Jesus came to earth to try to convince the Father, hey, we need to save some people down here. We at least need to give it an opportunity, so on and so forth. That is not the point. The point is this. God planned it. God accomplished it. God saw it. God saw it through. This is his work from beginning to end. Finally, Number Six, this is not in the passage, but don't be disappointed. I think you're going to see this. Well, it's not in our passage this morning. Peter takes up the imagery in First Peter Chapter Five. Listen to these words, and you're going to see the parallelisms, okay. Therefore Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5 years later years later I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ Here's the apostle Peter saying I'm also an elder You can see this transition going from apostles to elders in a local church because the uh, because the apostles are going to what they're going to die off But obviously Peter was also an elder with a flock or or with other elders over people, overseeing souls that Christ died for. And he goes, so I exhort the elders among you and he, as your fellow elder. I'm one of you. And witness of the sufferings of Christ. I was there at his death. And also, but take her also the glory that is to be revealed. talking about the Shekinah glory. Okay. The Mount of transfiguration. He He saw Moses and Elijah, right? He goes that. He goes, verse 2. Shepherd, there's the imagery. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Manage spiritually the life of the body, the church, of the souls that have been in charge to you, that you oversee. Look at their lives. Help them in their walk with Christ. Be with them when they're in the valley and when they're on the mountaintop. Guide them and lead them. Not only that, he says, be an example to them. I've had to live for Christ through it all. It's not that the elder or pastor is always on a mountaintop. Oh, please don't believe that. Whatever you think about me or an elder, we got valleys like everybody else. Amen? It's not that we don't enter into valleys. It's what do we do? Where do we go? To whom do you go when you're in that valley? As well as when you're on the mountaintop, who do you go to? You see, what the Bible teaches, the Christian life is consistency. If you're in a valley of sin, you go to the Savior. If you've gone weeks and you're doing great and God is just blessing you, you know, you just, you're just you riding a mountaintop, you're on a high, what do you do? You just praise God and thank him. Blessed be the name of the Lord no matter what you go through. Amen? Well, anyway, notice he says, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. There's the imagery, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, okay, but voluntary. Oh, I better do it or I'm not going to get a paycheck. I better do it or or, or I'm going to be in trouble. No, you do it voluntarily according to the will of God and not for, here it is, not for sordid gain. You don't do it for self advancement. It's not a job and you're working up the corporate ladder of the church or a denomination, which many have done. Are you with me? But you do it with eagerness. You do it with excitement for the glory of Christ because you're excited about him and who he is. In verse 3, nor yet is lording it over those, well, you better or I'm going to come down on you. Oh, no. You know what real shepherding is? It's like what Jesus did. You come up on the sheep and you lift them up and you encourage them. You don't do it with a haughty spirit, but with a humble spirit because you know without a shadow of a doubt but by the grace of God, there go I. That's when we restore one another. It's with great gentleness, understanding that that could be me and not him or her. Amen? But proving to be examples to the flock. And then verse 4, will end with this. And when the chief shepherd appears, that's just this section. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Isn't that a beautiful picture of pastoring, of eldership, of the flock? Finally, back in our passage, we're going to conclude with verses 19, 20, and 21. We have the crowd's response. It's an illustration of how sheep hear him and recognize his voice and follow. Or not. And right here we have a large or not. A division occurred. Oh, go figure. So Jesus came to bring peace. So Jesus, there should be a, when you go preach the gospel in the world, there should always be peace. But no, no, he came, came to cause division. He taught that it would even happen within your household. Because some people choose to trust Christ and others won't. There's division. And that person who trusts Christ follows him. They hear his voice and they follow him. There's person doesn't want to follow him. There you have that division, that big cavity between that chasm between the two. And it happens at work, it happens in your own homes, it happens in the world. But look at this crowd for a minute. Because of these words, what words? The words we've just spent time looking at, verses 1 through 18. Now many of them were saying, he has a demon, and this guy's nuts, he's insane. Why are you listening to him? And yet others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind. How could he be telling us false when he just healed this guy? See what they were still had in their minds. How, how, I, I'm not. I'm not agreeing with you. I, I might be struggling to understanding, but I know he's not a demon. I know he's not a nut because he's he, he's got some legitimate healing going on here. It is evident. Here's here's the point. I think some will either reject outright, like 20, those who accuse him being insane. And in having a demon, there's just an outright rejection. Or some will hear for a while, and even maybe follow for a time, but yet in the end of the day, they will leave. The next group, that's substantiated by the seed and the sower and many other places as well. As First John two nineteen says, listen to this. Write that down, just a reference. But listen to these words. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they have been of us, it assumes they've been there for a little while, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. So in closing, let me ask you some questions. Number one, do you recognize the voice of God today in his word? Do you hear him? Has he called you by name? Has he called you by name? When you read John 3, 16, for God so loved, do you put your name in there? God so loved Jim Pittman that he gave his only son. Is salvation personal to you? Are you under conviction? Are you under conviction? Do you without doubt say, I know I'm a sinner, and I'm so sinful, I have nothing I can do about it. I need somebody outside of myself, outside of this world, who will come and take care of my sin. Are you under that conviction? Even daily, even as a believer. And therefore, every day as a believer, you run to the gospel, you run to Christ, you you live at the foot of the cross as a believer. Here's another question. Is Jesus Christ the good shepherd of your soul? Is he the good shepherd of your soul, of your life? finally, if not, would you yield to him right now? Would you confess him as your good shepherd? Would you give your life over to him? The only one who can eternally save you. It's not a temporal thing. He, it, it, you know, he, I save you, he says. I am the good shepherd and I came to save souls. And here's the good thing. You got a body right now, don't you? Well, that body's going to die. But your soul's going to live forever. And the word of God also promises, with that soul, I will give you a new body. Wow. That's our blessed hope. He is the good shepherd. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for the convicting work of the spirit who convicts us who teaches us, who gives us understanding that the word of God is alive and true and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we cling to the only one, the good shepherd, who has the power to save our soul, and he is no other than, none other than Jesus Christ himself. Although we never want to compromise him. He is the only way. And we know he loves us because he gave his life for us. There is no substitute for him. He's it. Father, thank you. May we spend the rest of our days on earth thanking you for sending your son, adoring you and honoring you and hallowing your name. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And all God's people, amen. God bless you.